A few years ago, a young woman who I would say was in her early 20s, or I'm sorry, late 20s or early 30s, came to the church to talk to me about something she said that was weighing heavily on her heart. And she began by telling me some of the backstory of her life so I would have a context for what she was about to ask me. And what she told me was that she had been brought up in what she described as a very conservative Christian sect that still practiced what would probably be best described as arranged marriages. Now, that surprised me. I hadn't heard that arranged marriages still existed. But she said she had uh, grown up in that community and that her father had arranged a marriage for her to a young man from another state that she had known a bit but she didn't know him too terribly well. And soon after the wedding, he became very physically abusive towards her, and it got so bad that she said she eventually had to escape from him, and she divorced this angry man for her own safety. But after her divorce, her family and her entire church community then shunned her and would have nothing to do with her. And what she wanted to know was if she was wrong in getting a divorce for that reason, and was she now beyond, damaged beyond repair, and would she ever have a time in the future where she could think about remarriage? Now, what really broke my heart in this, beyond the abuse that she'd physically suffered, was that her family and her church community had chosen to stand against divorce as a greater sin than someone physically abusing their spouse. And they clearly felt it was more important to dole out judgment on the sin of divorce than it was to offer her any grace in that moment. And like I said, all of this broke my heart. We are in week four of our series called The Credibility Gap. And the credibility gap we are discussing these five weeks is the gap that exists in many people's hearts and minds these days, the gap between what many disaffected people are thinking about Christianity and Christians and their willingness to even consider our message of Jesus. And I have to say that if I were to tell this young woman's story to any of these disaffected and disdainful of Christian people, folk, that I have known over the years, just the fact that this kind of judgmental behavior exists in any corner of what is called Christianity would have driven these people even further from ever listening to a message about Jesus. Now, I know that this example is extreme. It is. And that the vast majority of folk who call themselves followers of Jesus would find what happened to this young woman absolutely unacceptable. But here's the truth. It doesn't take too much of this sort of behavior by Christians to paint the whole of us as being terribly judgmental and ungracious. Most disaffected people, the very people that we long to see meeting Jesus, can't begin to tell the nuanced differences between various branches of the Christian faith. We all get lumped together by the wider culture. 
And while I'm not here to talk about other churches or denominations or anything like that, we all know, we all know that when one popular televangelist who spent years mercilessly railing on the sins of the world gets caught in some sort of disturbing bad behavior, it sets us all back. That all of Christianity suddenly gets thrown into a basket of, a, of assumed hypocrisy. And what I believe this all comes down to is that it's how important it is for us to live by what I'd like to call a well-calibrated internal moral compass. Here's what I mean by that. Um, a regular compass, a compass that is well-calibrated will always tell you exactly where north is. It's consistent and it's true. You can count on it. But an uncalibrated compass will point you north sometimes, and then other times it will send you in the wrong direction. So if you have a well-calibrated internal moral compass, it will direct you to do the right thing. It will always send you to the true north in what you're thinking and what, how you're living. It will never allow you to drift into who knows where. But if your internal moral compass isn't well calibrated, it will lead you to thinking that some sins are repulsive and absolutely unacceptable while other sins can be overlooked. If you have an uncalculated moral compass, you can get lost in a moral swamp. And here's the point in all of this. When Christians live by an uncalibrated internal moral compass, when they make harsh judgments about some sins and then they overlook other sins, particularly the ones in their own lives, it widens the credibility gap for those who are watching our lives. I'm sorry, but it just works this way. Whether we like it or not, the very people who don't want to have anything to do with the church or Christians still have very clear ideas about what the church should be and how Christians should live, and again, while we may not like it, these disaffected people see Christians making harsh judgments on some things and then overlooking other things, and they smell hypocrisy. And we all know that hypocrisy widens the credibility gap. When I was a boy, being divorced was considered one of the major sins. Now I know it's been a really long time since I was a boy, okay? This is a, it's a different world now, but when I was a boy, when, a new, when it was discovered that a new person in our church was divorced, why, they practically handed them a scarlet letter D, if you know what I'm talking about. And divorce removed a person from any possibility of church leadership at any level. And the circumstances of the said divorce weren't the issue. It was simply the fact that someone was divorced that brought on the judgment, and it was judgment without much hope of any grace. And even as a child, I could feel the judgment from adults towards people who were divorced just in the way they would say a divorced person's name. 
Now, there are two very powerful passages in the New Testament that talk about this subject of passing judgment on others. In the first passage, we hear from Jesus. And in the second passage, we hear from the Apostle Paul. And I think that those are two very powerful voices, two voices we should listen to. Jesus' comments are found in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. And so let's all turn to Matthew 7, 1 to 5. While you're turning, I do want to say hey to everybody that's watching online. Um, Good to have you with us. And again, I want to open up a welcome to those of you from North Indy. I saw some people that were coming in that I recognized, and it's so good to have you here with us. Again, that's Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. And what we're going to look at here is something that Jesus said right in the middle of his most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had just finished a long section where he focused his teaching on the things that we shouldn't worry about. He said, we shouldn't worry because God will take care of us. We shouldn't worry because God is taking care of the birds and the flowers and he's going to take care of us. There's no reason for anyone to worry. And this is wonderful confidence-building stuff from Jesus, and then boom, he turns a big corner and he starts talking about something that we should worry about. And here's what it says in the New Living Translation. It says in Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you'll be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged And I would like to stop right there and read that first verse in the raw Greek, if I might, because it is way more aggressive. It goes like this, judge not, or you will be judged. With whatever judgment you judge, you will be judged. Now, did you notice that Jesus used the same word five times in that that one little sentence? It's like five times. I think he's making a point about judging. And then to strengthen his point about judging, he goes on, and it's odd that the New Living Translation that we use here at Grace doesn't even include these words, but this is what he says next. He says this, and what, with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Now, notice he used the word measure three times in one sentence, and this word, it's taking the measure of someone else, as in judging someone, Jesus was really pushing his point here, that we are be, we're supposed to be extremely careful in the way we what? Take the measure of other people, judge them. And then he goes on to say one of the most recognizable passages, say something that almost everybody knows about in some way in the whole of Scripture, he says this, and why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you rid, help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Okay, Jesus was saying that we might have a log in our eye, and it's, I mean, it's clearly an exaggeration, okay? It's an exaggeration for effect. But still, what Jesus was saying is obvious. 
First, in those first verses, he says, we shouldn't worry about the splinters worth of trouble in someone else's life when we have a log in our own. I know that all of what he says is make sense. What? We eventually get what we dish out. If you dish it out, you're going to get it right back. And then he says we need to take care of our own business before we take care of judging other people's business. But I just want to be honest for a second. It's really hard to do that. It just really is. It just doesn't come natural, naturally, at least it doesn't to me. Um, and it's even harder when we're dealing with something that I have the solid conviction that it's just something I'm just not going to have. I'm just not going to put up with that in other people. And I don't feel it's all important, all that important to pay attention to this other stuff that's in my life. I mean, that just happens. Now, I want to be sure that you understand where I am on this. I would never say that we should condone anything that is truly sinful. I'm not saying there aren't times that we have to call down some kind of judgment on terrible behavior. I'm not saying at all that we should just ignore other people's sin. But what I am talking about and what does widen the credibility gap and what does keep many people from acknowledging that Christianity has any merit is the notion that Christians are continually judgmental. And the complaint isn't that we're just simply judgmental, but that we make judgments that are made by an uncalibrated inner moral compass that doesn't seem to be consistent and it never allows for grace. A long time ago, um, when I was 16, so I'm not even going to do the math about how long ago that was, uh, our family attended a small, independent, evangelical church of about 250 people. And the church had hired a cool, young youth leader to oversee the about 30 kids who went to, 30 high schoolers who went to that church. And we met in homes after the church's Sunday evening services for a Bible study. And what happened was that the time together with this cool young guy was so wonderful and amazing that many of the original 30 kids started to invite their friends to come to this youth meeting that was in people's homes. And literally, in about two months, the number of kids had grown from 30 to about 80. Now, I know that 80 does not sound like a big youth group, but it was for a church of 250, and it was for meeting in people's houses to have 80 kids show up on a Sunday evening. Now, these other kids that were coming in were, for the most part, our friends who were not churched at all. And this was 1969 and 1970. Now, I know I'm going way back here. All teenage boys in 1969 and 1970 had rather long hair. And everyone, girls and boys, wore t-shirts and bell-bottom jeans everywhere. We just did. Well, for some reason, for some reason, all of these people being gathered up like this, all of these hippie types, from who knows where, 
under the umbrella of our church filled some of the adult leadership with great fear. They thought what was really going on was some sort of open rebellion. And uh, they decided to lay down the law. Rule one, in order to come to the after the evening church service Bible study, you had to first attend the church evening service. Rule two, since attending the evening church service was in God's house, you had to dress in a respectful manner when you came to the evening service. Rule three, respectful manner of dress meant that all boys had to wear a collared shirt and cuffed pants and girls could not wear jeans. Rule four, you had to wear these respectful clothes to the youth meeting. Now, it clearly didn't matter that there were 50, close to 50 teenagers with no church connection who were willing to come out on a Sunday evening and to learn about Jesus by studying the Bible. Nope. The sin was a sin of general disrespect. The sin of making some sort of rebellious open statement against God through fashion. And boy, did the judgment rain down. And the edict certainly had an effect. You can guess how long that Bible study lasted. I still am in contact with some of those 50 guests. I've had a meal with three of them in the last month. And they are still no closer to Jesus than they were 50 years ago. And a good portion of the reason is because the one time they did think about looking into Jesus, they were told by the Christians in the church that they didn't meet the standards for getting in the door. I got a text last night from a dear friend after he heard me speak this message. He was there, and he said, the moment I started to speak about the cool youth group leader and the 80 kids who came, he burst into tears because he too still knows people who were there who in that one moment were turned away from Jesus by people who turned them away because of the length of their hair. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why haven't these people gotten over that by now? I mean, heck, it's been 50 years or so. But the truth is that people hang on to things like that a lot longer than you think they will. Especially when things like that happen to us when we're teenagers during the years when so much makes a strong impression on us and it never leaves us. That's just the way it is. Now a footnote. About 10 years after that happened, the pastor at that church, the man who had spearheaded the edict about collars and cuffs, made a concerted effort to have a face-to-face with me. And when we were face-to-face, he apologized for that time. I will never forget, this is like a strong moment in my memory. Him saying, he said something just like this. 
that if he'd known how many logs were in the eyes of those who had condemned me back then, or us back then, he would have never spent one minute trying to get the splinters out of our eyes. He said he was sorry that he'd try to clean up everybody before they'd even have a, had a chance to hear about Jesus. And then he said this, I'm asking you to extend to me the grace that I was unwilling to extend to you. The Apostle Paul had some strong things to say about making these kinds of judgments on other people. Turn with me, would you, to Romans chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll see what he had to say. Actually, he starts this discussion not at the beginning of chapter 2, but at the end of the first chapter of his letter by talking about how some people have decided that it's not important to acknowledge God. They've just decided we want nothing to do with God and we're not even going to pay any attention to Him. And so Paul says what God has done is just let those people go. And now, that, now they're doing all sorts of things that should never be done. And what Paul does at the end of chapter 1 is give us a long list of things that should never be done. And what a list it is. I'm going to read it out, but before I do, I want you to know that what we're going to read is a list of vices. And it was very common in the ancient world for moral philosophers to make lists of vices, but usually they made lists of virtues and vices together. But when you only get a list of vices, the author is planning on you as the reader to take this list of vices and then think about what's opposite of it as virtue, to take time and concentrate on what would be the exact opposite of a terrible list of, of vices. And so that's what they're assuming. And so here's Paul's list of things that should never be a part of anyone's life. Greed, hatred, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, backstabbing, God-hating, insolence, pride, boasting, inventing evil things, disobeying parents, being foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Whew. And then Paul ends this list by saying, hey, everybody knows you're not supposed to do this stuff. But the problem with people who don't acknowledge God is that they not only do it, but they encourage other people to do it. And okay, these things are terrible. They are. Nothing in this list could somehow be twisted into being a virtue. And it would seem that it would be permissible just a little bit to sit in judgment of anyone who is a gossip and backstabs and is heartless and greedy. But then look at what Paul says in the first verse of chapter 2. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are as bad, just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see from his kindness that it is intended to turn you 
from your sin. Yikes. Now, what Paul's saying here is pretty easy to understand. If God can be this kind and tolerant and patient with me, if he is this gracious to me, when I do some of these very same things, then can't I? I mean, shouldn't I at least try to be as gracious to others, especially those who haven't realized that they need to turn from their sins and follow Jesus? There's one one quick interesting aside in this passage that struck me, and it's this. In the Greek, there is something I have never seen anyone except the translators of the King James Version include in their translations. In verse 1, where it says this, Paul says, you may think you can condemn such people. But then in the Greek, Paul adds one little addition. He adds, oh man. And then he goes on. So it literally says, you may think you can condemn such people, oh man, but you are just as bad. And then in verse 3, Paul does the same thing again. He says, why do you think, oh man, you can avoid God's judgment? And here's the deal. I know of only one place in the whole of the rest of the Bible where the phrase, oh man, is used in this way. And it's in the Old Testament in Micah verse six, or chapter 6, verse 8, where God says this to his people. He says, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that Paul was hoping to get his readers to think about the passage in Micah when he added his two O-mans. I am certain that he was pointing his readers, the people he was accusing of things that they shouldn't do, back to a passage that tells us what we should do. And what does that passage tell us we should do? It's that we should what? Do things with justice in mind. And that we should love mercy. And that we should be humble as we walk with God. And here's what all of this tells me. If I want to close the credibility gap for someone who thinks that all Christians are judgmental and graceless, then I need to show justice and mercy as I walk humbly with God. My showing grace will narrow the credibility gap and give those who desperately need Jesus an opportunity to see what grace actually looks like, what the grace of Jesus looks like when they see my life. Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. Again, I am not advocating for ignoring brokenness and immorality in other people's lives if they are broken or if they are living in ways that are contrary to God's heart. But I am confident that the way that we reach those who are disaffected or disdainful of our faith is by living lives that are gracious. Even when those we are trying to reach are living cynical and sinful lives. The way that it works is like this. We do everything we can to bring them to Jesus. And then it's the Holy Spirit's task to move in their hearts and change their lives. It's the Holy Spirit's task to remake them into the image of Jesus. 
I know that sometimes that we're called to speak about the things that need to change in other people's lives. But most of the time, it, the, the call is simply this, that we live the kind of life that narrows the credibility gap and brings people to Jesus. Now, earlier I said, when we find an ancient list of vices that the author expected his readers to think about what life lived in the opposite fashion should be, that the author expected us to think about actions of virtue. So if we go back to Paul's letter in, the Roman, in Romans and that long list of vices, I have done just that. I have returned it upside down 180 degrees so that we can hear what should be done, what a virtuous life should always be like. And here's what he says. You should always be generous. You should always be loving. You should always pay attention to others and make certain that what you do and say is life-giving. You should always be working to bring reconciliation. You should always be honest and kind and trustworthy and supportive of others. You should always live a life that shows you love God and always be respectful and humble and modest. You should always be thinking of ways to create good things for others. You should always respect your parents and listen to them. And finally, you should always live a wise, faithful, caring, and merciful life. Now, you know, I'm just thinking, if we were to live like this, it couldn't help but make us gracious. It will calibrate our inner moral compass, and it will keep us from being overly judgmental. And particularly, it will keep us from passing judgment on some sins while overlooking others. Both Paul and Jesus have called us to one of the most powerful apologetics for the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And it's this. They've called those of us who follow Jesus to live in ways that shows the world that God's grace is real. That God's grace not only flows from the throne of heaven to all mankind, but it also flows out of the hearts of those who, are, who call themselves his children. And this is the kind of graciousness that will do more than narrow the credibility gap. This is the kind of grace that I fully believe will open up the doorway and have many people who need to follow Jesus come through and find the grace that can only come from our Father above.